0: Hey friends, Rick Lee James here inviting you to join me over at rickleejames.substack.com. Substack is a great new free platform that helps me connect directly with all of you who listen to my music and podcast. All you have to do is subscribe with your email address and that's it. It's easy to use and we can interact right away. So go to rickleejames.substack.com for some inspiration in your inbox. Or by tweeting at me, at Rick Lee James on Twitter. And please join my mailing list at rickleejames.com, where you can receive an email every time a new episode is released. And by the way, in case you're interested in a daily dose of kindness and encouragement beyond this podcast, I also run the Twitter account, at Mr. Rogers Say, where I post daily quotes from Fred Rogers, one of the voices in my head. Well, I guess that's it for the intro, so sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of Voices in My Head. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I'm your host, Rick Lee James, and I'm so glad that you're here with us this week for what I know is going to be another great conversation. My guest this week on Voices in My Head is Matt Lewis. Called a first rate talent in The Washington Post and super smart by John Heilman, Matt K. Lewis is a center right critic of American politics and pop culture. As a journalist, Lewis has earned a reputation as an independently minded and intellectually honest commentator. He is a senior columnist for The Daily Beast, and his work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, GQ, The Washington Post, The Week, Roll Call, Politico, The Telegraph, The Independent, and The Guardian. He previously served as senior contributor for The Daily Caller, and before that as a columnist for AOL's Politics Daily. Lewis dissects the day's issues in conversation with other thinkers, authors, and newsmakers on his podcast, Matt Lewis and the News, and co-hosts the DMZ show with liberal pundit Bill Sherr. He is a political commentator for CNN, has appeared on C-SPAN, PBS NewsHour, ABC's Nightline, HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, and CBS News's Face the Nation, and has contributed to radio outlets including NPR and the BBC. Kirsten Powers described Lewis's 2016 book, Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Went from the Party of Reagan to the Party of Trump, as a lively and fascinating read for any person confounded by the state of today's Republican Party. In 2011, Lewis released The Quotable Rogue, The Ideals of Sarah Palin in Her Own Words, an edited compilation of the Alaska governor's much-discussed public utterances. He's here today so he can share a bit about himself with our listeners. Matt Lewis, welcome to Voices in My Head.
1: It's great to be here, and I'm I'm reminded of the George Costanza line. If you you took everything I've done in my whole life and condensed it into 30 seconds – it's okay. It's,
0: decent, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot, and I need to re-record the intro. I kept stumbling over. There's so much there to say. It's actually quite impressive. And and you really have had quite a storied career. And I, I know there's lots more to come, but you've really had a lot of great accomplishments. And it's a different kind of career than most of us really have probably experienced in our day-to-day life. Most of us who listen to podcasts or watch television shows or, or just listen to the radio from from day to day, we're unaware of the type of job that you do, and uh, you know most of us don't see a college career path for becoming a critic of American politics or pop culture, and uh, and so today I wanted to to talk um, to you sort of about. Your story and, and maybe ask you about some of the highlights of your career and some of your backstory because you really have had quite a career. You've run political campaigns. Uh, you've also done things like work for Roy Rogers restaurants. Uh, but at the same time, you've also worked for Tucker Carlson. Um, and then you've hosted these, this great podcast that you have every day that comes out, Matt Lewis and the News, and you really have some wonderful guests. Uh, that come on your show and, and you have some wonderful and very lively conversations. So I guess what I wanted to do today is really just have a chance to showcase Matt Lewis. I know sometimes, because I do these shows all the time where I'm interviewing people, it's fun when I get to go on a podcast occasionally and, and they ask me just some questions about myself. I, I wanted to give you that opportunity today to just talk about you and kind of share some of your story. So so let's talk about some of that backstory. What are what would you say are some of the your highlights of your career and some of your backstory that kind of led you to where you are today
1: oh well let's see so I mean one part of my backstory is that I was a musician Um, Hmm. not a great musician but an aspiring musician it's funny I I found that a lot of people who do what I do are are sort of failed artists in some way (laughs) I was I was at a breakfast with um three or four of my Daily Beast colleagues and It just happened. It just came up that, like, I think four out of five of us at the table were pretty serious musicians. Oh, nice. Um, And that's something I just didn't even know. But playing music, my dad, my dad, um, you know, was a correctional officer in Hagerstown, Maryland. And he was a really good, uh, he used to play in a country band called Irene and the Country Rascals. And he's a really good kind of bluegrass picker. Nice. Uh, a gospel singer. He played in a, a band called the Gospel Travelers in Frederick, Maryland. Um, so he taught me how to play. And and uh, and then I started when I was a little older playing in bands. And that taught me so much amazingly about things that I still do today, whether it was like promoting, you know, uh, promoting a band or performing, kind of getting over the nerves of, of getting up and, and performing uh working together collaboratively with mm-hmm. other people in a band is something that's very similar to what I do now with with everything my writing even though my name's on the headline it it's a it takes a village so mm-hmm. um you know that's just one of the one of the things that uh sort of led me where I am I always loved politics and if I had you know I didn't have the talent to make it in music but if if I ever had I would have wanted to be sort of like a like a bono type of mm. musician, like someone who <laughs> who actually used, you know, used their platform to achieve some sort of virtuous, you know, uh goals and sure. and somewhat political goals. So it didn't happen that way. But you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And I think um my parents at some point must have thought I was gonna be a loser and and that I was wasting my time. But amazingly that time it was well spent. It was actually training me <laughs> very much for what I do today.
0: Yeah. So, so I can imagine your parents first starting out as I I want a career in music and then no, I want a career in politics. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I think both in the same, uh, same way, uh, that they would probably, most parents would think, Oh boy. (laughs) Uh, I mean, now that I'm a parent, yeah. now
1: that I'm a dad, I I can so identify with the the pain, (laughs) the pain and the, and the fear, uh, and the difficulty of cutting the apron strings. The weird thing too, is I, I went to a very small little school, um, Shepherd College in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and I actually was a political science major, but it never occurred to me because, again, my dad was like a prison guard and we didn't have any friends who were like lawyers or politicians like that was just it would be like saying if you told my dad that I was going to, you know, your son's going to grow up and be like on TV talking about politics and writing books, it would have been pretty much as outlandish as it if you said like your son's actually going to be a rock star or going to be like a professional baseball player or something, it was just beyond our experience. So I went to, I went to college to learn about politics, but, um, but never did an internship, never volunteered on a campaign the whole time I was in college and really had no exit strategy, no plan to parlay that into a job. In fact, my idea for how you got a job was, you look in the back of the Frederick News Post newspaper for wanted ads. And that's what I tried to do. And that's why I ended up working at a fast food restaurant.
0: Yeah. Well, well, tell us a little bit about that, because because when you when you graduated, I believe was when you started working at a, a fast food place called Roy Rogers, and here in Springfield, Ohio, where I live, we don't have those. But I've done enough traveling as a musician myself. I've actually uh, stopped at Roy Rogers restaurants on occasion when I've been in the areas. But tell tell us a little bit about that experience.
1: And if you've ever seen the Americans, the uh, the TV show, the Americans about those Russian spies, uh, there's a, a big episode that actually I think I think takes place for Roy Rogers if okay I, if, if memory serves but anyway uh, Roy Rogers is actually um, a really good fast food chain and they've got great roast beef sandwiches and they got the Fixin's bar um, and before Panera and uh, Chipotle and those sort of restaurants um, you know came on the scene Roy Rogers was was Uh, Sort of like an upscale fast food restaurant, just a, you know, a little bit nicer than Wendy's, let's say, or or McDonald's or that was the space they were going for. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I had done work like that before. I mean, I worked at a a fried chicken restaurant uh, called Watson's in Frederick, Maryland. I worked at a gas station for five years. Um, I worked at a, a awesome pizzeria in Frederick, Maryland, uh, that I still frequent called Il Forno's Pizzeria. So I had done that, but I was in college at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't my career. That was just me working my way through school. Sure. Um, but, but then I graduated and I had no way to get a job. So I, I started working at this Roy Rogers, uh, as a training to be a manager and, and, uh, and i and they were they were great to me I, I have nothing but good things to say about the franchise but it, i was miserable because <coughs> it was not what i was called to do um sure. and I, I i really for the first time i really kind of hit rock bottom and, and went through some depression mm. um at that at that period of my life yeah
0: well and 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 that, and that isn't oh I'm sorry, I think I accidentally muted my microphone. Uh, <laughs> I, I had to cough, so I, pardon me. As a,
1: as a podcaster, uh, I've, I've done that so many
0: <laughs> times. <laughs> um, well, I was just going to say, yeah, when when you're in a job, even if it's one where they treat you well, and it's not one that you you really feel that your heart is in and one that you even feel called to, it can be such a miserable thing sometimes, even if they're treating you yeah. well and you're working with good people. Um, so so you're at this point where you, you have your degree at this point, correct? correct and and your degree yeah. was in and what was your degree in
1: it, it was in political science
0: political science and you're working at a Roy Rogers restaurant because yeah. you you really just kind of went to the one ads after you had graduated at this point
1: right because i never had i mean because of the um the the blue collar background that i had my parents knew enough to say you got to go to college we want our sure. son to go to college but what they didn't know is And years later, a couple years later, when I finally was interning at a, a place called the Leadership Institute, uh, one of my fellow interns gave me a book called Dig Your Well Before You're Thirsty, the only networking book you'll ever need by a guy named Harvey McKay. Hmm. And it taught me about networking and like not the dirty, like slimy, skeevy networking, but really what we would just call making friends. Mm-hmm. Um but it was a foreign concept to me I, like i literally had to read a book to understand that like most people don't get hired by sending a resume like hmm. but i i had no experience in that so even though i had the degree i had i was not equipped in any in any way to actually um do anything with my life
0: hmm. so so where in the in the time frame of like working this job at the restaurant to actually starting to work on a political campaign or actually pursuing a job, like from reading this book. Uh how did you make that leap from from finding this book and learning about making the connections? Like what what was sort of that time frame and how did you make that leap?
1: So what happened is, uh so we're we're in like nineteen ninety eight. Uh I'm working at this Roy Rogers fast food restaurant and I'm just miserable. Absolutely mm. miserable. Um and, um, and I went to my dad who, you know, again, these sort of blue collar, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, guy who had like endured so much crap from me. He, he, he's passed away in 2004, by the way. Um, but he was someone, you know, I'd put him through a lot, I'm sure. Um, and I told him I wanted to quit. And I remember, uh, expecting, you know, him to basically be like, Hey, look, man, I've been supporting you for years. Uh, it's time for you, you need to like, like life's, you know, life's not supposed to be fun. Suck yeah. it up. Uh, you know, and instead he was like, okay. Um, and so I quit, I quit that job. And and so I'm actually a believer that quitting is sometimes a very good thing. Sure. I'm a, I'm a fan of quitting. Uh, and, um, and I, then I, I, I have to be honest. I mean, I really hit bottom and I prayed and and mm-hmm. I very sincerely said, okay, God, I do not know what I'm doing. Um, and, uh, you tell me what to do. Cause obviously I don't know what I'm doing. Hmm. And before I tell this next part, I just want to make clear, like, I don't really, I'm not one of these people who like believes that like God calls people to be president or, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. But I can tell you, I do think he cares about us and, mm-hmm. um, and the affairs of men. And I said, uh, you tell me what to do. And I, I had this weird um, immediately epiphany that i should volunteer on a campaign hmm. and i had this feeling of comfort and i can tell you i've literally never in my life thought about even though i was a political science major i'd never volunteer on a campaign never thought about volunteering on a campaign um and suddenly i had this piece i'm actually you may not realize this people probably don't think it, it because i get up and i give public speeches and i go on tv but I was like a very shy person hmm. and um, so shy that like I literally would not go make change. Like if I buy something at Seven Eleven, you know, because that interaction with the cashier was um, made me too nervous. Yeah. And so but suddenly I had this calmness in this piece and I did volunteer on a campaign. And um, the person said uh, the candidate said, um, actually, I need you to be my campaign manager. And so I went from being (laughs) I went from being uh, unemployed to managing a pretty high profile state senate race that opened every door everywhere I am today. That began that that was the beginning of it. It opened all these doors, and in fact, that's what led me to intern at the Leadership Institute, where this other intern um, gave me that book: "Dig Your Well Before You're Thirsty." Huh. Um and I guess I should just say I know at some point you may ask me for books so that would be one of them maybe yeah. that changed my life
0: Sure yeah No, that's that's great Uh and I, and I also wanted to to just kind of interject in there and say that it really doesn't surprise me that much either to find out about you being an introvert because I I have a little bit of that myself and what I know from a lot of my friends who are creative types who whether they are writers or, or singers or songwriters or uh, people who do do public speaking um, it seems like we thrive pretty well on on platforms or, or places where we're in front of people but as soon as we're off the platform, it's like, boy, am I drained? I need to go <laughs> and hide yeah, somewhere. Totally. And, and, totally, and, I, yeah. and I feel like a lot of us are doing pretty well during this pandemic, just kind of in our <laughs> homes, you know. I've been being,
1: training for this my whole life. Yeah,
0: but my, our time has come, yeah, you know? <laughs> for sure. So well, no, you're you know,
1: totally right? There. I think that's that's the definition. I think of introvert. It's it's that do you gain energy from being around people or lose it? And I can tell mm-hmm. you, like, I. I spent four years working at this pretty amazing um, organization called the Leadership Institute where I literally went around the country recruiting, organizing, and even conducting seminars, Um, getting up in some cases and speaking for hours and hours, and I got to be very, very good at it, Um, and it would just uh, wipe me out, though, totally wipe Mm. me out.
0: Wow. Well, and I, and I bet it would, yeah, because it, it does, it does put a real drain on you when you're in those times and you le- need a lot of time to kind of recharge your batteries kind of by yourself after you're with people all the time like that too. So that can be a tough thing. Um, I, I do kind of want to interrupt in this part of the story real quick and, and maybe jump back on at this part in just a few minutes. But I did want to ask you because you, you had stopped to say that you had had really spent some time in prayer at this point in your life. And and I did want to kind of ask you about kind of your your faith journey up to this point in your life and and kind of really what role your faith has has played in shaping you really as a person maybe from your childhood and you had talked about your dad um, playing gospel music and different things. What was kind of your your background in your family um, as far as your faith goes? Because I'm I'm convinced that in, in some ways, um, our family background plays a lot into the kind of people that we become. Not only in sometimes our politics, but sometimes with the kind of of uh, faith that we grow into a, a, in in life later on. And sometimes we turn away from that. Sometimes we lean into it. And I'm, I'm just curious as to to what. What role faith plays in your life?
1: Well, I mean, and let me start with the caveat that I am uh, far, far from a <laughs> perfect person. Um, but no, I grew—I so I, I grew up in a in a Christian household. Um, but it's sort of a weird background. Like uh, I grew up really close to a Brethren church. It's, okay. It's, um, Named after a family, interestingly, Grossnickel Church of the Brethren. I've never heard of a church named after a family. It's huh, not like Trinity or it's, – yeah. it's you know it's not so – it, but it, it was a Brethren church, and as you may know, Brethren were pacifists. Um, okay. I, I don't think anyone who goes to that church today is a pacifist. I mean they're <laughs> just your normal Trump voter, I, I would imagine. Um, but that was part of it. But I also my, – my dad grew up in that church, but – you know, he believed that he actually was not saved Hmm. until he heard, you know, some Pentecostal preachers on the radio. Um, Hmm. and so, uh, he also injected that sort of, of theology, um, into me as well. And we attended, um, and one of the sort of sad things is, you know, we didn't really have necessarily a home church my whole life. My dad, mm-hmm. we would go from ch- kind of church, would go for a couple of years to a church and then move to another. It would say something that wasn't quite exactly in line with my family's theology at the time as we would move on to a different church. So I had a, a lot of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad was consistently a, a believer. And, you know, when my dad died in 2004, um, you know, you go through their stuff and yeah. If you go through people's stuff, you might, you know, never know what you might find, right? You sure. might find like a letter from a mistress or a whatever. When I went through my dad's stuff, all I would find are like Bible verses that he had like mm. handwritten. I'm talking about every, his drawers, his book, like whatever. You just keep finding all of these like, <laughs> the, he was incredibly devout. And wow. if anybody is in heaven, he's one person I'm pretty confident, very sure. confident. If he's not there. Uh, there's not a lot of hope. That's pretty um, neat. So he really provided that really a, a great uh, witness and, and testimony uh, for me. And then I would say, as I um, as I got older, just as my politics matured, um, I think my faith did as well. Um, where I started, you know, I became uh, I started listening to a lot of like Timothy Keller, okay, the pretty famous uh, pastor for Christ Redeemer in in new york and um and so that wasn't just the you know the churches i used to go to when i was a kid were were very much geared toward salvation so in other words there was an altar call at every single sermon
0: every service and every
1: (laughs) and every service was preached to you as if you were a sinner who had never accepted christ that was the ultimate goal, and I totally understand it. But mm-hmm. in some cases, there were only like 10 of us there, and we've been going there for 20 years. So <laughs> instead of that, I might have enjoyed what Tim Keller provides, which is, I think, more of a guidance of how do you actually live the Christian life and how do you grow and, and become an adult Christian, an adult believer. Right. Um, and so um, I, 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 I uh, since you know, and I'm still have a long way to go. And now, of course, I'm a dad. And so mm-hmm. um, my kids both go to a Christian school. Um, they started off going to a Lutheran school, uh, which was fabulous when we lived in the D.C. area. Now they go to like a more fundamentalist type of school. Hmm. Um, but I supplement that with <laughs> all sorts of other uh, things that I, I just take the responsibility as a parent. I think, you know, being a teacher is, is yeah. a being a dad is so important
0: yeah I you know I find that too with with my son we are I'm always trying to um, to stretch myself as a person of faith' I'm, I'm actually an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene which is part of really the American Holiness movement um, but i find myself leaning a lot more towards the catholicism and the eastern orthodox church and and uh, a more liturgical background than i ever grew up with and uh, and i find that there's a lot of benefit to that and so i find that even with my own son who is 8 now um, I- i'm trying to, to give a good like smorgasbord you know <laughs> and not just not just one thing, because there's such a richness to the faith that I, that I don't want to neglect any any part of it. You know, I feel like that that we can learn a lot from each other. So um, totally.
1: And, yes. I, and look, I I I used to tell people that I'm temperamentally Catholic and theologically <laughs> Pentecostal, and and I feel this way in everything. I mean, my kids right now are you know my my oldest boy takes jujitsu, um, but I want him to take um, judo and taekwondo as well. And I, I think if if you got very proficient at those three martial arts, you'd be a pretty tough hombre.
0: Sure. Well, and, you know, I, I think that, that that kind of openness, you know, theologically, it probably serves you well with we'll, – we'll jump back a little bit more into your career story here as well. But I think it probably serves you well in sort of the, the life and conversations that you're having. Um, in your career and you being a conservative, um, but in many ways, I think the conservative party is, is kind of left you, you know, in, in some yeah. ways, and we can talk about some of that. Um, but I think in many ways, just in, in reading what you've written and, and kind of listening to you and, and the conversations that you've had, especially over the last four years, um, it's been interesting to kind of watch the ways that I, that I feel like maybe, because of your openness to others who are not of the same political ilk of you, um, I think it's, it's been neat to kind of watch you grow and stretch and, and find, um, maybe some, some newness that, that you maybe would not have been open to before, but because of, of, uh, of your openness to, to some new relationships that, that maybe you wouldn't have been to before, um, there's been some actual real growth there too, you know, which, which maybe we can talk about that as, as yeah. some part of the stories with these good, like, conversations that you're getting to have. And, and so, so maybe we can jump back in when, when we had, uh, when I kind of veered us off course to talk a little bit about your faith journey. Um, we talked about you running this political campaign. Um, I don't think I asked you though, what, was, was it, a, was it a success? Did the, did you win <laughs> the,
1: <Yeah>. the campaign? <laughs> well, so, so it's, it's so funny. I live in West, virginia now and my congressman is a a guy named alex mooney and he was my state senator in maryland this is the guy so he moved states just like i did um so uh first of all i don't want to get i was i don't want to give the when we say that i ran his campaign i was the campaign manager but running his campaign entailed everything from cleaning out his car to driving him (laughs) to writing his speeches it was very all-encompassing so it was not the of I wasn't Karl Rove, um, <laughs> so I ran his campaign in the sense that I drove him often. Uh, but it was just an amazing experience, and he did win. He was uh, Alex was twenty six years old. Um, he beat a sixteen year incumbent, uh, wow. a guy named Jack Durr, who had been the minority whip of the Maryland State Senate. Um, and uh, it was a great it was a great experience, and Alex said to me. When I first started working for him, he said, if you're going to run my campaign, you need to learn what you're doing. There's this place called the Leadership Institute I want you to go to, and they do training. They train conservatives how to be more effective in public policy, including how to run campaigns. Actually, it's funny. um, I do a school for them still. You mentioned that there's no no college uh, degree in in doing what I do. Mm -hmm. That's true, but there is a seminar because I teach it. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I have to, there's a seminar, and if anybody wants to attend uh, on Zoom, I, I think we're doing another one this summer. It's it's got the unfortunate name "How to Be a Pundit," oh. <laughs> uh, which, which sounds very sketchy. Uh, but it literally is everything I've learned about how I do what I do. And oh, so, great. if if someone out there wanted to be uh, to do what I do, that would be the crash course.
0: Yeah, very interesting. No, that's cool. So, so tell us how, how you got from, you know, take, take us a bit on the journey then, uh, from, from running a campaign, um, to some of your other jobs that, that led you to where you are now because there's, there's several moves in between there for yeah.
1: sure. Right. So I did that campaign. We won. Uh, I would have loved to have worked for Alex in Annapolis. He ended up, thankfully, Uh, He he picked someone else uh, to sort of they get like one assistant in the state Senate uh, when you're a freshman, at least. And so uh, I ended up interning at the Leadership Institute. I ended up working there for four years. Um, And that was like the equivalent of getting a a Ph.D. in in practical politics, like in campaign politics. Uh, I went all over the country and uh, taught about politics and also listen, it would be me and like a couple of political consultants, like top strategists. And I would sit in the audience and, and, and listen to them give the same lectures. How do you develop a persuasive message? How do you develop a campaign strategy? And I heard these things hundreds of times and the Q and a, and eventually, um, it was just a great training ground. Then I moved to North Dakota and, um, you know while I was working at the Leadership Institute, I had on my own time, I had run several uh, state rep races and and uh, school school board races and and had a lot of success. But I'd never managed a statewide campaign. So I moved to North Dakota and uh, tried to do that. and uh, it, it was probably the uh, now keep in mind, a- after I hit rock bottom in 1998 at Roy Rogers, I'd had this kind of meteoric rise. Okay. I'm getting up in front of audiences, giving speeches, getting a, pl- you know, uh, all of a sudden things seem to be great until I moved to North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And like the first week I'm there the wind chills like 80 below zero. It's literally Ugh. colder there, colder there than Antarctica, literally. Wow. Um find out that my candidate had had misled me on a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know till I got out there. Um I'm out there my dad that's the year that my dad died, oh, uh, which which was really hard uh, for me. Reagan died that year. Wow. <laughs> the next month, my political father uh, died um, and my campaign lost. And and so uh, I, I kind of hit, hit rock bottom. But one really cool thing happened on that campaign for me and it was, I don't know if you remember, but around 2003, 2004 is when Howard Dean started running for president okay. in the Democratic yeah. Party and he started blogging. He was, Howard Dean and Joe Trippi, his campaign manager, whom I've since become friends with, uh, were, were doing these meetups on the Internet and they were blogging and blogging. And So I started blogging on my campaign okay. and that introduced me to writing and got me a little bit more experience in writing about politics. And then after that campaign ended, I wrote some case studies Um about politics, and and I found that you know a lot of journalists didn't have any practical experience. They'd never worked on a campaign. They'd never run a campaign. And so I started writing pieces, um, about uh you know how to win an online campaign and things like that. And and um, and, and so that basically served as a bridge. The internet served as a bridge. Blogging served as a bridge for me to to transition from being a campaign guy, which. I, I, sort of learned at some point I wasn't cut out for Like I thought because I loved working at the leadership Institute where I was teaching people how to run campaigns, mm-hmm. I thought that I loved campaigning. What I later learned is I love teaching. Hmm. I actually, it wasn't the campaign part that I loved. It was the helping people, the teaching people part that I loved. Sure. And it didn't matter so much what I was teaching them. Um, and so that's kind of what I do now with my writing. So the internet, as much as I, uh, lament the rise of, of, of social media and modern technology, there are a lot of great things about it, including the fact that, that someone like me, I could have never broken in, and uh, the, uh, the National Review wouldn't have hired me, the Washington Post wouldn't have hired me, uh, I didn't have the credentials, and, and frankly, mm. wasn't that knowledgeable or talented back then, uh, but it provided a, a way for me, a bridge for me to transition from being a campaign guy to being a guy who writes about campaigns. Sure.
0: No, that, and that's amazing. And so it was, you, it was really your, your blogging then that, that got you noticed and, uh, by some of the more, more like national outlets and things like, like National Review and like, like you had talked about. And, and there maybe weren't as many people at that time, uh, doing the blogging as there are now. It seems like everybody and their brother has, <laughs> As a blog today, or uh, or podcasting has has really taken off for sure. But yeah, I, I uh,
1: really benefited from kind of being an early adopter. That's yeah. that's me. and also being willing. Like I started off doing it for free, right? I started off. So the first place I wrote was Human Events Online. They had they were so far behind. They just launched their website like in two thousand three or four, and and they were looking. So I volunteered, and, and they let me write for them for free. Then I got hired to go to townhall.com, but here's the funny part. They actually hired me to be the director of operations, which was sort of a crummy job, to be honest with you. It was a thankless, difficult job. But I negotiated that, like, if I will take this job if you let me write on the blog. Hmm. And so I wasn't getting paid to write. That was the fringe benefit. But oh. the writing started to catch on, and what the, what really happened for me then is Everyone else at townhall.com and like including Hugh Hewitt, who was part of the Salem family, they were all like in the tank for Mitt Romney. They loved them some Mitt Romney. (laughs) I never liked Mitt Romney, to be honest. I I like him now, but Mm -hmm. I was never a Romney fan. And in fact, I argued that John McCain was more conservative Um, Mm. because remember, Mitt Romney had been like pro-choice in the past. Mitt Romney had supported... This Obamacare, Romney Care, uh, sort of stuff in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So I started writing, blogging stuff about McCain, and the McCain people found me, and they were desperate back then. If you were back then, uh, there was a sense that the blogosphere really mattered, and so the McCain people started uh, inviting me on their calls. I got to go to New Hampshire and ride on the Straight Talk Express and interview McCain, and that really opened uh that was a big moment for me as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, oh I bet that was. So what what was that like? Uh, just getting to spend some time
1: with McCain. It was awesome. Um it was awesome just for two re- for two reasons. So first of all just the experience. I mean, so you know, remember in 2000 he had the Straight Talk Express and and uh he re- he sort of tried to re recapture that magic in 08 and it was I could tell you it was magical. The guy mm-hmm. Was completely available, like hmm. he didn't hide away. He was on the record the whole time. If we were driving from Concord to Nashua or whatever, you would be riding, sitting right next to him in the back, and he'd be making fun of you and joke. That was sort of his shtick, and he calling mm-hmm. you uh, idiots or you know whatever. But it was all in good fun, and sure. he would be eating like a hot dog and drinking a coke, and and just you were on the record the whole time. So. It was just sort of personally rewarding and fun. Sure. Uh, the son of a prison guard, next thing you know, I'm riding the Straight Talk Express with John McCain. <laughs> the, 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 the sort of benefit for my job is, you know, I would go to these, he would, driving from, he didn't have any money. Remember, John McCain had gone broke in 2008. <laughs> he started off as the front runner, and then ran out of money, and the next thing you know, he was like, carrying his own bags at airports. But the, you don't need a lot of money to win New Hampshire. It's a small state. All he needed was a bus. And so he was going and, and speaking at all these town hall meetings. And so I got to see him at these town hall meetings, and it occurred to me, he's going to win New Hampshire, hmm. or at least he has a really good shot. And so then I come back to D.C., and I'm like the only guy who thinks McCain's going to win, <laughs> you know? Hmm. And so that gave me a, a competitive advantage over sure. over. Everyone else in the in, in the game, and so I was writing like, "Hey, don't be surprised if if McCain wins New Hampshire," and and sure enough, he did. And I was wow. in New Hampshire that night. It was it was pretty amazing.
0: Wow, that that's pretty cool. And what what great stories to be able to share too. I mean, just to, and, and especially now with sort of the um, the, I mean, he's he's kind of become a legend at this point, especially after his passing and and being one of the the people that. You know, after his passing and, and even with his funeral, you know, it's sort of being, um, being that he was one of the few, like, guys to really in the Republican Party that, that still was willing to kind of, take a stand on principle you know <laughs> for who he was and 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 still be kind of true true to who he was you know right there at the end so i i'm i'm glad you had that time to spend with him and that you found him to be kind of that true genuine person that's really a neat thing um
1: yeah it was great and it was it it wasn't idiots it's jerks he would be a yeah. bunch of jerks you know he would
0: yeah you probably
1: heard him <laughs> say that but it's a term of endearment you know
0: yeah sure yeah. Yeah, it was and he's he's a guy that has so many stories about him. I mean both good and bad. I'm I'm sure that there's yeah. there's all kinds. I think kinds, he did but, have
1: a su- a super bad temper. I have no yeah. doubt about it. I would not have wanted to end up on the wrong side of yeah. him screaming at you, but he he also was incredibly charming.
0: Yeah. And you know, I think the thing about him more than anything else, I just the the, the whole aside from him being um a politician that was you know, all years that he was, I I just still go back to, um, so much respect for anybody who was a POW. And, um, and I, and I just go back to, um, because of who his father was, that he had a chance to probably get out of that, you know, uh, out of that prison camp that he was in and, and chose to not use you know, his, his, yeah. as who his father was. Um, that just speaks volumes, I think, about to, to his character as a person. And, and I, I don't know. I, it's, it seems rare to see, um, that kind of character today. And anyway, we, we, we've probably spent too long talking about him, but I just think it's, I think it's a neat story. And I, I'm glad yeah. you had a chance to spend with him. It's, it's rare that I meet people that, that had a chance to rub shoulders with the likes of him for sure. Well, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk a bit and, and we're, we're really, we've, gosh, we've already spent like 40 minutes together and I, I don't want to waste all of our time, but, you know, it, it may surprise some of the listeners of our show to find out, especially if they listen to your show very much because you tend to not be, um, on the Tucker Carlson side of things these days, you know. <laughs> When it comes to your view of, of politics, um, I, I would still say you're very much a conservative. Um, and, and I loved your, your definition um, when I was reading through your book and I, I highlighted it. And I just wanted to read just a little bit from Too Dumb to Fail real quick before I ask this next question. Um, one thing that you wrote in Too Dumb to Fail, you said um, conservatives, con, excuse me, conservatism is about conserving the good things about Western civilization, it's about a rejection of utopian schemes and moral relativism, a humble acceptance that life is too complex for elite plan for elites to plan. It's the belief that Western civilization didn't merely happen, but was instead the result of accumulated wisdom of our ancestors. Um, and I really like that kind of definition about um, that. It's that it's really something to be Preserved and and that we're we're hoping to hold on to um, the good things, you know. And I, I like that. And and I I was thinking about I th- I think it was actually an interview that I he- heard with you with Justin Gibney. Um, I, I believe it was on your show a while back, and and uh, it was talking about politics for the common good. And uh, just thinking through some of those things, and and uh, I I feel like that's kind of where. Maybe you come down, when I think about kind of your view on, on what it means to be uh, in politics and what it means to be a conservative, is that it would mean that really this is all about for the common good, that we are here uh, for for the welfare of people and, and, and that we would take care of each other and that we are here uh, really, if, if we want to boil it down to sort of a gospel message. Um, politics the way we structure ourselves really we could boil it down to loving our neighbor you know and and we disagree on how we do that but i think it really is about that if if we cut through all of the all of the, the you know all the stuff that surrounds yeah. maybe it, it sums up that and so often it gets to be about fighting and and so anyway all this all this is to say at one time tucker carlson was your boss <laughs> yeah and well, he, can, he I, is,
1: can i can i jump in real quick before we get sure to yeah please is that is i think this is a fundamental dis- difference between my worldview and the maga trump worldview like sure. i truly believe that the conservative philosophy that that I advocate and that I grew up with is the best for everybody, and that it can help lift people up and help them uh, flourish. Right? I don't think Trump's people believe that. I think they believe that it is a a zero sum game, and that politics is about power, and that everybody can't benefit or everybody can't gain. You can't grow the pie, and so it's about picking winners and losers, and they want to mm. be the winners, and so. Uh, that is a fundamental difference uh, of how I view politics and how I think the Trump folks see it.
0: Sure. Well, and so so that being said, like in 2016, when you wrote the book "Too Dumb to Fail," like Trump was the presumptive nominee at that time, and and you were no. making some some, no, no. some predict I, some predictions that ended up, you know, being true. <laughs> when I, so
1: when I wrote actually when I wrote the book when I wrote the book Trump this i wrote the book before the new hampshire primary ever happened so trump was oh, not, wow. no the, the you may have the paperback okay so the paperback so the book was written i probably uh, i probably gave the the final draft to my publisher in like november of 2015 okay before the primary had even begun uh, in earnest um, but you have the paperback maybe and that came out like in say uh may um, of 2016 and it, okay. it, it, included, it included the paperback includes like a brand new forward that I updated uh, that is when Trump was the presumptive nominee. Yeah.
0: That must, I bet I have that one. Uh, I actually have it on my, on Kindle. So, uh, it's, it, it might be that version that came through on Kindle, um, that I'm reading about. Um, anyway, for, for whatever it's worth, it's a great read and I want to recommend it to people. But I, I can only guess that, you know, it would have been an easier journey as a conservative and you being a pundit, being one who is, you know, um, always on the news shows and, and talking, I imagine that would have been easier for you in many ways, career wise, to become sort of part of the MAGA group, you know, and, and not become sort of a critic of President Trump, but to just kind of go along with it. Um, and so I've, I've been fascinated with you uh, in particular, and and people like you. I've I've been a big fan of of people at the Bulwark, for instance, yeah. because they are what I consider a, a group of center right people as well, um, who really I feel like have stood by their principles and have given me a place as somebody who I, I'm not actually a super. Uh, political person, but I'm a person of faith, and I care about things that that often I feel like I side a lot more with conservatives. But I don't feel like there's really much of a place for me in the Republican Party anymore, and uh, so I feel like in many ways people like you, people at the Bulwark, have, have been kind of a place. That have been kind of a haven for me to feel like, well, I guess I don't feel crazy, you know, <laughs> you know, at this point when I have these conversations. Um, but, but I, I guess leading up to this question, I, I can only imagine how much maybe it has cost you in some ways. And I wonder what it has been like for you to remain faithful to your principles as a conservative and not jump on the the Trump, the Trump train, has it felt like career sabotage for you in any ways by doing this?
1: Well, it is weird because so like cable TV, right or wrong, they want to have um right versus left or, you know, they – a normal cable TV segment, they want it to be like this person is defending Trump. This person is attacking Trump. Mm-hmm. And it's clear to understand and it's not really fair to Trump to have someone ostensibly a conservative defending him when they don't really like him. Right. So Mm -hmm. so then and and the other problem, too, is that um, branding basically says you have to pick a side, pick a tribe. And so if you're someone who's saying like, well, look, I disagree with Trump. I think he's a bad person, but I think these conservative judges are good like that. That doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. It needs to be Trump is evil, bad. Everything he does is evil and bad or Trump is great. He's the second coming. So Mm -hmm. it has been it put me in a um, in a weird, difficult spot. Like I truly believe if if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency in 2016, um, I would have become one of the probably leading voices advocating uh, how to fix the Republican Party and the conservative movement to become a winning party and movement again. Mm -hmm. Or if Rubio, like if Marco Rubio, let's say, had had won the nomination in the presidency, I might have been one of the leading conservative voices kind of championing Rubio uh, nomics or the Rubio revolution or whatever it would have been called. Mm -hmm. Um, Trump did create a a weird dynamic for me to try to stay relevant and 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 put food on the table, to be honest with you. It, It was a weird time. But no, there was never a temptation to go Trumpy because I just can't. Like even if I Mm -hmm. wanted to, even if I was like uh, totally Machiavellian and just about getting paid, I I just couldn't do it. Like Even if I tried, I I couldn't become something that I'm not. Uh, So that part never – that was never really a temptation. The hard part for me has been what I would call like almost the identity crisis of – really, and the acceptance of really accepting the fact that, like, so much of what I thought about my fellow conservatives and my fellow Republicans was wrong. Hmm. And what else, if I was wrong about that, what else was I wrong about? And, um and grappling with that and grappling with people that I know and love and friends and, and just, you know, I was part of the conservative movement and still am to some degree. And like, that is, infrastructure that's like your next job and your mm-hmm. family it's like a fan it's like family and so yeah. um that part was more it, it wasn't it was never a temptation for me to to go to the dark side um but it was uh, an emotional struggle i would say more than anything else to grapple mm-hmm. and deal with with what happened to uh it just um all my assumptions about uh what the right and the conservative movement was were um, kind of ripped apart. Hmm.
0: And and that has to be hard too. And I've I've felt some of that as well. And and there are times that you you maybe see people's character for the first time. You know, and 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 you think, man, I I had no idea. I thought, you know, I thought you would stand up more for this than you did. You yeah. Know? For, for me, it goes all the way back to the very beginning when when I think, you know, I started seeing even fellow ministers defending things like, you know, the Access Hollywood tape with like, well, it's just locker room talk. And never, never in my whole life had I ever heard like a fellow pastor that would have defended that. You know, and and just right, said, right. you know, in that way, I, and and immediately I knew something was wrong, and that led to four years of still seeing that, and even to the point of. Like, uh, you know, being told and called out several times, you know, don't, don't you ever dare say anything negative against our president. You know, he's he's God's Messiah, basically. And it's kind of, it's a weird place as a pastor. And, and again, as, as not even a political guy myself, just trying to be true to the gospel at times, um, I, I find that uh, even when you're trying to talk about something like the fruit of the spirit, uh, it can get... So heated sometimes because, like, stop talking against our president. <laughs> like, well, I'm just, you know, <laughs> well, no, it's no, like, right, you I'm, read, I'm, you yeah, read
1: that verse, every <laughs> single thing. Trump is the opposite of it. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's like, I'm not talking against him. It's like, if you see it there, then it's just there, you know? So it's interesting. Hey, uh, I have a couple more questions, but we, we have gone over just a little bit. we do you have just a few more minutes to, to hang around? Okay, yeah. good. I, sorry. This is, this is great. And I'm enjoying what you have to say. Um, well, well, I've appreciated appreciated what you've had to say and, and Matt Lewis and the news has been one of my go-to podcasts over 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 time and I've really appreciated your conversations with people from from different uh, angles and different conversations and um, but it would be great I would just love to have your kind of perspective on on where things are right now and at the time we're recording it's gonna we're about a week out um, actually the, the time we're recording today tomorrow will be the actually uh, the inauguration of, of the new president, Biden. So who knows when actual impeachment stuff is going to happen and things like that. So nobody really knows. But I'm just interested in your opinion, um, just as you know more than I do, probably. So why not? You're as smart as as, a, as smarter than I am. So <laughs> I'm just going to ask um, now that the House has voted to like impeach Donald Trump for the second time and he's not in office. He won't be in office anymore. I'm just curious. How how do you see things going this time around? Um, like, is is it important? Do you think for an impeachment to happen, even though um, you know, even though he's not in office anymore? Just, I'd love to get your your thoughts on this.
1: Well, the first thing I'll say is that nobody knows anything, and the so-called experts don't know any more than you do. Okay, um, which is tough to admit, but it's true. Um, but you know. If you watch the Super Bowl, you know, you're going to see happens all the time. Right. You'll have like um, Tony Dungy or uh, Joe Montana or Terry Bradshaw or, you know, Howie. They're, they're going to get up and they're going to say, like, Tampa Bay is going to win. And four out of five of them are going to predict Shannon Sharp or whatever. You know, Tampa Bay is going to win. And then, you know, Tampa Bay will lose. And <laughs> yeah. And you can't say, well, Terry Bradshaw doesn't know what he's talking about, um, but that's why they play the game, and people don't really know, hmm. even even if they're qualified and knowledgeable and do their homework, they they actually don't know uh, what's going to happen. So, a little humility, I will I will start with I'm I'm, I'm humble uh, about that. What do I think is going to happen, um, or what should happen? I, I think that they should vote to convict and remove and to, um, you know, this vote that would prevent him from ever holding federal office again, I think is really important. And look, I, I've gone back and forth on this for the last five years, actually. Um, you know, I there's a guy who emails me once in a while. I don't think he's a fan. We'll call him a reader. <laughs> there's a reader who emails me once in a while. And I remember in 2015, he emailed me and he was like, Republicans need to shut this Trump guy down now. They should He's not a Republican. He's not a conservative. They should not let him on the debate stage. And I thought, look, I don't like Trump either, but that's heavy handed. And there'll be a backlash. And he's probably going to fade away anyway. Um, but if we bar him from the debate stage, then he's going to become like a martyr. Uh, it'd be better to give him enough rope to hang himself, basically. Mm. And I was wrong. We should have mm. nipped that in the bud. And yeah. so, I think that's the lesson that I've learned, and maybe it doesn't apply universally, but when it comes to trump uh I'm watching the Cobra Kai show on Netflix oh, sure. and it's no mercy, you know what I mean, like no mercy toward Trump, like he needs to be taken <laughs> out of commission, as John Creese would say, uh sweep the leg, whatever it takes to to get <laughs> to keep Trump from running again uh within reason i'm I'm all for that, yeah.
0: Well, and you know what? And just to bring it all around to an aspect of you know speaking pastorally here too, I've said for some time that the people who are the biggest supporters, especially the the people of faith that are supporters of Trump, I feel like love him the least. And and what I mean by that is, I feel like they must have the least amount of concern for the man's soul, Um, because to me. If you really love somebody and are concerned for them, then you want to say to that person, if you see them in destructive behavior and if you see them in ways that you know is detrimental to their salvation, living ways that are harmful to themselves and to others, Um, especially if you're a minister, like your job is to look, man, don't you see you're going down this road that is leading you to destruction, you know? And it seems like we've had four years of just, oh, you're great. You're wonderful. Everything is good. And it feels like to me, we've had so much of this, oh, you're just perfect and wonderful and lovely. And to me, it's people that say they love them that are not showing them that they they love him in any way. The other thing too,
1: the other thing, too, is consequences, right? So for me, in my yeah. life, the biggest moments of change have come when I kind of hit rock bottom, you know? Yeah. Um. And I didn't have – I couldn't fake it till I made it. I didn't have daddy to loan me a million dollars for one thing, right? But I – but that was the best thing that happened to me. There were consequences. Sure. and But Trump has never really faced consequences. And, and yeah. we keep letting him off the hook by saying, like, oh, it will be too divisive or we need – it's a time for healing. Like – No, Mm -hmm. every once in a while, you need to basically put somebody in their place and give show them that there are consequences and set not only to force Trump to reckon with that, but to set a message to the next authoritarian demagogue that there will be consequences. So I'm in that I'm in that tough love camp, shall we say. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there needs to be a chastening for everybody's, you know, <laughs> good that, you know, may, maybe this, maybe him facing actual consequences might might actually lead to his actual real salvation. You know what I mean? So <laughs> like, it's more likely to happen like, if
1: he does face consequences than if everything, yeah. if he's able to just pretend everything's great. And yeah, I mean, it's a yeah. fool's paradise.
0: As As much as I've disliked him, I still hope for that. You know, I still hope for redemption for everybody, you know, and I I do hope for that for him. Well, you know what? Um, I Just just a couple more questions, and I'll let you go today. You've been so generous with your time, and I've loved getting to hear your story again today. Um, Tell me, what are a couple of books? You've already mentioned one, but a couple of books that you found to be the most important in your life and career. It doesn't have to be political necessarily, but just a couple of books that have meant a lot to you.
1: Well, I think, you know, Orwell's book, 1984... Changed me. Um, I think it's kind of hard to read that book and not have it change you. Mm. I wouldn't recommend. I know high schools read it. I'm not sure if that's good. Kind of opens mm. doors you can't close. But um, but when it comes to uh, you know my political philosophy, which which part of it, not the entire part, but part of it is is concerned about preserving freedom and standing up to authoritarianism. Like certainly it was formed by partly by that. Um, one book that really influenced me, and, and, and if you read my book, Too Dumb to Fail, you're probably going to see a lot of references to it, is a book called Crunchy Cons mm. by Rod Dreher. And it's about, heck, it's probably 20 years old now. But um, it's a book about how, uh, I think the, the subtitle has something about Birkenstock Burkeans, you know. Uh, it's, it's it's about people who are conservative um, but they're not the kind of conservative who drive their SUV gas guzzler to McDonald's drive-through on their way to home to their McMansion, right? right. It's um, they go to farmers markets and they eat arugula, and um, they live in a, a small town with a walkable community. And that book really um, inspired me, and uh, uh, you know, it, it's 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 one of the foundational books that that uh if you read too dumb to fail i think you'll you'll see some crossover there
0: Well, wow, that's great well i do want to recommend everybody read too dumb to fail it really is a good book and i, I think it could definitely use an updated version again because here we are four years <laughs> later and and uh it, it really is a good read um, it's, it's been really great talking to you today and, and we went over the time that, that I asked you and you've been so generous, uh, with the time allotted. So, uh, listeners, if you haven't had a chance yet to listen to Matt Lewis and the news, I would recommend you go and check out that great podcast or any of the other great things that Matt has going on. You can find him at mattklewis.com and I will make sure and put links to Matt on my website and you can find that either at voicesinmyhead.com substack.com or uh, through my website at rickleyjames.com and uh, as always on twitter at rickleyjames you know how to find me but we'll make sure and get all of the links there for matt uh, matt as i say to my guests every week thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week
1: <laughs> it was a great conversation rick uh, i really appreciate it and thank you for all you do thank you
0: for joining me here this week on voices in my head I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleejames.com, where you can find out more about me, get my music on vinyl and CD, follow my blog, and even schedule me for a concert or a speaking engagement. Better yet, even a book signing in your neighborhood. You can find all that and more at rickleejames.com. Also, it would mean a great deal to me if you could write a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast will be online. And now, for the benediction, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you, and thank you for listening to Voices in My Head.